Welcome to the C Word, the conservative podcast. Today we're talking about touchy-feely. I'm Jenna Mathias, an objects conservative based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservative based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservative based in Cambridgeshire. Today we're going to explore the topic of touchy-feely, by which I mean touching things a lot in museums. Objects. Yeah, I feel Not like people. this is... Uh... Yeah. Touching up. No, no, that's a very different episode. <laughs> I, I speak from the point of view of someone who has a lot of objects on open display. Oh, and I know yeah. people touch them and we try and communicate that they don't. Please stop it now. Um, <laughs> but we know they do anyway. So having strategies su- to encourage touch and to use touch as a method of learning mm. is something that is obviously both very good and quite problematic from a conservation point of view so i suppose that's what we're talking about isn't it? yeah so it it can be tricky as a conservator to be happy with touching things obviously we're very happy to touch things but to <laughs> let other people touch things and that can be about relinquishing control and you know allowing things to get a little bit more worn than we might be comfortable with but those are all things that we're going to explore into today's episode so that's all good uh, what, what sort of things do you have on open display because you have like full-on silk banners and stuff don't you yeah we have a lot of um hung textiles yeah um, painted textile i, I can see that being paint. an issue yeah so i think I, I know the focus of the the episode isn't to talk about how to stop touch people touching stuff but it's worth saying that we we accept an element of risk for the benefit of being able to get so many objects mm-hmm. out on display and they're <clears> objects <throat> that are changed every year partly because they're hung under their own weight but also because we recognize that that they they will be touched and they will be like under that additional pressure basically we do have signage we've developed our signage in recent years so that we provide a bit more information about the conservation side of things so we essentially i write them so that it's it's a nicer way of saying don't touch stuff it's it's like this thing is very fragile for these interesting reasons don't touch it that kind of thing oh well that's an interesting yeah, yeah yeah so we we have that we do have a handling collection as well and for people to use for teaching purposes so that's where my museum is with unintentional and intentional handling i've seen some really nice examples of things like swatches of fur in to stroke the swatch of fur rather than the taxidermy or like a vase that people that are encouraged to touch instead of like actual objects people do them in lots of different ways so i'm really interested to hear what everyone else is working on yeah. to be honest. so uh brace yourselves but i'm a very pro-touch conservator mm-hmm. and i think touch is a good thing um, i'm but- raising my eyebrow <laughs> but so where I work now, there are a couple of things that people traditionally do touch. Now, there are certain things that I'm unhappy with people touching. You know, I would strongly encourage them not to. But <laughs> there are things that are very traditionally touched. For example, we've got a bronze bust of a person who, sw- who swam the channel. Mm-hmm. And it is good luck to rub his nose. So he has a very <laughs> shiny nose because everyone who comes in rubs his nose. That isn't on the interpretation label. That is something that people know. It's mm-hmm. good luck to touch his nose. Mm. So they do. And I, I think that's a fascinating bit of modern folklore because yeah. this isn't a massively old thing. Similarly, we have a piece of taxidermy that we kind of, we treat as a working piece of collection. Like, mm-hmm. uh, because there are different distinctions that you can make in collections, such as things are working collections can be things that are you know wound up or used as part of their life in the museum 
um, because that's how they are meant to be used in the institution. Like, that's mm-hmm. a decision that you can make, which is seen as slightly different from a handling collection normally. Um, but again, this differs between institutions. And essentially, this piece of taxidermy, Marco de Bear, he is seen as working collection because mm-hmm. traditionally... He actually used to go after schools because he was part of the education collection for a long time. But we now designate him as working collection because people come in and they touch him. They stroke him. They We have some visitors with special needs who come in and hug him. And that is their ritual. Mm -hmm. And that is why they come to the museum. Mm. And that enables them to enjoy the rest of their stay and that sort of thing. So there are certain amounts of negotiation here where we go, this is fine. And we have decided that it's fine. And under other circumstances, we might have thought that it isn't, but actually, we're just going to go with this is fine. And this is something that took me a long time to get to terms with, because when I first started it, I was horrified that people came in and <laughs> hugged the bear. And then I started getting more of an appreciation for who these people were and what kind of connection they had to the object, and that it was such a big deal to them to come in and touch it, that it was a more genuine connection that meant something to them. And far be it from me to go I'm going to put him behind glass so you can't do that that would actually Mm -hmm. diminish his value because that's his value his value is that he's there and he's available I mean it's not something that would encourage anyone to do because it isn't something like we don't have a sign saying come and hug the bear that's not a thing (laughs) but it's also not a culture where we would go don't touch that walk away from the bear like that's also not what we do but that's an institutional approach and Like, that's something that's, you know, an agreed thing where we are. So it might be that your museum has something weird like that, where you're like, everyone is allowed to touch the bison's butt (laughs) or the top of the statue's head or, I I don't know, this doorknob. I don't really know what's going on in your museum, but there could be something weird like that. That's where we're at, where I work now. But I've always been very pro-touch. And I think that's because my mum has gone through bits of time where she's visually impaired. And my honorary grandma, she was blind at the end of her life. And I think those things really affected me in terms of their enjoyment of heritage was severely diminished because they couldn't go and look at things. And there was no real offer for them Mm -hmm. as people with uh, a disability. And that was really unfortunate. And I think we've come a long way since then. And we are trying to offer good things for people with uh, with sight loss, for example. But that's something we're going to talk a little bit more about shortly. But So I've always been very pro-touch, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And when I was a student, I read two books that kind of changed my life. They are Touching Museums, Policy and Practice in Object Handling from 2008 and The Power of Touch Handling Objects in Museum and Heritage Contexts from 2007. Those are both collections of texts that are excellent and talk about why touch is important to humans, why they might be important to museum professionals, and then again why they're important to visitors and how we can mitigate the kind of risks of having people handle stuff and how we can work with that and enable access. So I just thought those texts were They were brilliant books and I just kind of loved the concept of access that they offered. So I'm a very pro-touch person. Hi, I'm Jenny. I have a touch problem. I want people to touch things. (laughs) Christina, how about you? It's really interesting you mentioned those two books because they both, I think, came out of the same research project at UCL. And um, having trained at UCL, Mm. I was kind of still in touch with the people who taught there as well. So that that was kind of quite influential on me, the, the person who 
was leading the project was uh, Liz Pye, yeah. who just before she retired was professor of conservation at UCL and taught me when I was training to be a conservator and then was also my uh, principal supervisor when I briefly did a PhD. So actually those two books, sort of one of the things that made me think about these issues and become more pro-touch as well, funnily enough. One of the books I wanted to talk about today is called Conservation and Access, which is the contributions to the IIC London Congress, which happened in 2008. And because it was in London and didn't cost very much to go to, I actually went to that conference as well. I remember going to the session that was all about touch and handling, which was in 2008 and therefore just after the UCL project that resulted in the two books Jenny's talked about as well. So at the time, about 10 years ago, it felt like there was a real kind of moment of people becoming interested in these issues and so on. And it's interesting that actually you don't um, see so much about it anymore. Um, about touch and handling and access yeah, and so on. They've kind of fallen well. off the radar. And I think what it is is that they've kind of become mainstreamed a bit more so that people aren't sort of setting up projects and talking mm. about it to the same degree that they were 10 years ago. But hopefully they're incorporating these sorts of ideas more into their practice anyway and encouraging people to touch things and increasing the handling collections and doing touch tours for blind and visually impaired visitors and so on. So I hope that's what it is and not that people have lost interest in this. Yeah, I was going to say that that's my theory, at least, that people are now so accustomed to actually being able to offer access to objects in this way. It might be that there are restrictions on that, that might be there's a select few objects that they do it with, but I think it's now more natural to allow touch in a way that wasn't previously done, which is great. Uh, I think mm. we still have a long way to come, but you know, I, I think it has progressed. So um, the other thing that really sparked my interest in this, and I've talked about this before, is that my older child is severely sight impaired. And as Jenny said, that really makes you aware of how it limits access to museum collections and the way that they're traditionally displayed inside showcases, behind glass, at a distance. My son does actually have some vision, but unless things are 20 centimetres or less from his face, he's not going to be able to see anything other than the very grossest of detail, outline shapes and so on, but he's not going to be able to see things. On the other hand, if he's allowed to bring things close enough to see them or to touch them, then the amount of information he gets is tenfold, you know, it's, it's ten times greater. I guess because obviously we're passionate about this because we've got a, a personal connection to it. But it, it has been nice talking to particularly people in learning and engagement who obviously don't have that connection, but they are already very enthused mm. about that type of outreach. Previously, I facilitate touch tours, which I know is something that you did as well, Christina, didn't you? Yes. So when I was working at a small museum, I was really keen to set up a touch tour and worked with the learning and outreach people to do this. Um, I'd like to ask, have you attended Touch in Heritage events with your son that have made you think further about this or made you think about the different methods or nuances of this? I haven't really? attended any special events because, and this is something I've got a bit of a bee in my bodice about, they tend to be organised on weekdays and aimed at adults. And I think uh... Uh, blind and visually impaired adults are now on the radar 
of education departments in museums, blind children are not. And that's not surprising because the number right. of blind children is tiny compared with the number of blind adults because most adults with sight loss have lost their right, vision yeah. later in life because they've got macular degeneration yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And so there's a much higher mm-hmm. proportion of blind and visually impaired adults than there is of children. Actually, I tell a lie, I have attended things and they were brilliant at the Science Museum. <laughs> Ah. <laughs> we've been to things i'm so sorry science museum for forgetting this um the science museum runs events i think three <laughs> times a year and they're called discovery or possibly vi discovery but anyway some combination of vi visual impairment and discovery <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they are on saturdays so that children can go and they're aimed at children and they welcome siblings and all the kinds of things that really make it possible for families to attend these events. The other brilliant thing is that each Mm. day has a theme and so they tie in the events to that theme. So we went to one that was about space, for example, and um, we also did one that was about computing and robots and they were both really, really good. I think we've been to another one, but I can't remember what it's about. They've thought really hard about how to make these things accessible and funnily enough, a lot of it is hands-on teaching rather than object handling per se. So there often is a bit of object right. handling, but for the space one, for example, we, we did a, a whole um, interactive storytelling session where the children were given props. They were given a Tyvek suit, like a space suit, but it was like one of those kind of things that forensic scientists wear. We sat in a chair and we strapped the children into the chair because it was like their seat in the space rocket that they were going to go in and so on. And then they played all of these sounds so that it sounded like you're in the rocket. And they talk, talked a bit about going to the International Space Station and the kind of work that the astronauts on the space station do. And then there was this whole kind of storytelling scenario where we had to kind of get in our rockets and go up to the space station to solve some problem that, that was there. I think something a malfunction where we had to go and repair it and so on. That is amazing. And they thought really well about how to incorporate sound and dressing up. And the parents were encouraged to kind of sit the children on the chairs and strap them in and then shake the chairs around while we were taking off while they played all of this kind of like sound of, you know, a countdown and then a blast off sound and so on. And, and the whole thing was very immersive and interactive. But at the same time, the kids did come away with some understanding of what astronauts in the space station Mm. do what their everyday life is like there what the whole purpose of it is and so on that's really good I'm really interested in what you're describing there because I I'm genuinely amazed at how kind of inventive that all sounds and it's got me thinking about the different ways of learning about our history that does involve objects yes as a kind of bring it back to to sort of this is an old thing that kind Mm. of way of thinking but there are so many ways of of teaching different people about something that doesn't involve you know looking Mm. at things and I don't think I'd even I've not really been like aware of the difference before I'd not even thought about it I'm gonna throw in a very quick quote which is actually from Liz Pye's book which is that in Western thought, touch is considered one of the five senses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's traditionally been a hierarchy of higher senses, those being sight mm-hmm. and hearing, and the lower senses being taste, smell and touch. It's interesting to me that some of them have been seen as the better ones. Yes, Listening yeah. to something and looking at things, they're nice things. Yeah. Licking things and touching <laughs> them with your hands they're, they're, and, and sniffing mm. them, those aren't okay. But it's interesting that we've decided as a society or as a western culture those things aren't okay and that's not a true that's not true all over the world for mm, example mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's interesting to me that this is possibly one of the 
reasons why touch hasn't been so welcome in museums because yeah. it's seen as a lower thing. It's something that uneducated people mm. touch things. Except if they're curators or conservators, yeah. in which case it's okay because yeah. we're initiated. Mm-hmm. But it's this interesting concept of touch being seen as not not very nice. Uh, they're touching it. Mm-hmm. That's weird. Even though it's a completely valid way of experiencing something. And it's extra funny to me now that we've, as a sector, and we've really gone in for immersive experiences, mm-hmm. which arguably involve a lot of these things, such as having things smell like yeah. uh, historical mm-hmm. garbage or <laughs> or having the sounds of a seascape around mm-hmm. you as you're looking at a maritime exhibition mm. or being allowed to touch things. Like mm-hmm. It's almost as if we're finally catching up and yeah. realizing yeah. that all of these things are valid ways of experiencing the past. Anyway, sorry, that was a footnote. So I organised a, or helped to organise a touch tour at the small museum that I worked at um, a few years ago. And it was open to adults and children. And we did actually get a couple of children, but it was mostly adults who came. It was done in collaboration between the conservators and the education team. So there were kind of four of us from the museum but in addition to this we also had another couple of museum staff involved and we had two conservation student interns and three volunteers as well so we actually ended up with 10 people running each session we did two sessions during the day and that sounds like a lot of people because I think we only had 10 people in each session but actually nobody was standing around with nothing to do so one of the things that it really kind of brought home to me was that It's quite a resource intensive thing to do if you're going to do it well and if you're going to do it safely. Um, You need a lot of people involved. Mm -hmm. You need people to help the visitors who are there potentially. You need people to be doing interpretation. You need people to be doing to facilitate safe object handling. You need people just to be kind of moving the objects about safely, all kinds of things. So that, that was one of the things I hadn't really realized until we actually did it was you need a lot of kind of bodies on the ground. Publicity was one of the other things, just just promoting it to make sure that you reach the people who you would like to come to the event. And so we did a lot of targeting of local charities, um, eye clinics, that kind of thing, to see if they could put the word out and get people. There were a lot of practical considerations, like how many people could we accommodate at one time? Could we get people into the building Mm -hmm. safely? Or would it involve going up steps or through routes that weren't necessarily that easy or accessible? Uh, What about wheelchair users or visitors with additional mobility needs or even additional other needs as well? Because sight impairment is one of these disabilities that often occurs in conjunction with another kind of disability or another kind of need. So you can't assume that people will be just blind necessarily. A lot of them will also have mobility difficulties, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, that was the case, as I can talk about in a minute. What about what do we do about the objects? Do we take people to the objects or do we close the gallery and bring the objects to people? Do we let them in the stores? How do we ensure that the objects are safe? What do we do about heavy or removable objects? <laughs> All of that kind of stuff as well. And then the real big thing was, should we ask people to wear gloves while handling or not? The museum that I was working in at the time mm-hmm. had a policy of gloves at all times. 
So um, especially in public, that was one of the really important things where whenever we did a public event, the staff would always wear gloves for all handling because one of the things we were trying to do was to get across a message about the importance of conservation and object handling. Mm, and so yeah. if we did an event where actually we said, OK, you don't need to wear gloves, it's fine. Would we be undermining what we were trying to do the rest of the time? What yeah. would that compromise the safety of some of our objects? So on the other hand, gloves do reduce the sensitivity of touch. Would you actually, if you made people wear gloves, would you actually be saying, well, okay, you can handle these objects, but actually we're going to do, do it in a way that means you're not going to get very much out of it and the whole thing's not going to be very meaningful. Yeah. So we had quite a big debate about that. And in the end, we asked visitors to wear gloves while handling metals, but said that they can handle other types of objects without gloves which sort of felt like a sensible mm. compromise to us. And we tried to make sure that we didn't choose too many yeah. objects where they would have to wear gloves. We then yeah. thought about the kinds of objects that we were choosing, because obviously there were kind of quite large parts of our collection that wouldn't really be suitable for this. So, I mean, the most obvious thing is paintings, <laughs> which <laughs> offer yeah, pretty yeah. much nothing <laughs> in terms of tactile experience or interaction. So, there were things like paintings and books and so on that were just and photographs and so on obviously were not suitable in the first place and we wanted to mm. focus on things instead that told stories that are allowed us to tell stories and so we chose objects that were safe for handling that was our number one criterion so nothing that was fragile or you know in, in really poor condition or could be easily broken we wanted to choose objects that were tactile, so not just three-dimensional, but did they have some kind of tactile appeal? Um, did they have contrasting materials, mm. for example, or decorative features or parts that fit together or move? And we also considered their overall comprehensibility. So is it an object that can be understood through touch alone? If you're completely blind and you're handed this object, would you be able to understand it by feeling it? Or is it something where actually you'd still have questions at the end of it because there are visual features that you're not getting? We even considered yeah. objects that appeal to other senses. So we had some um, grasses, for example, that you can smell ah. and has a nice sort of distinctive sweet smell and so on. And then we also wanted to kind of have a variety of objects that covered all different aspects of the collection. So it was quite a sort of tall order choosing these objects. And at the same time, we could, we yeah. could only have, we, we, we ended up with just seven objects. So trying to cover all of those bases in just seven objects was quite a tall order. So do you want, um, the seven objects we ended up with were a primus stove and a pony snowshoe from one of the Antarctic expeditions, <laughs> a modern polar boot and a sami boot from finland so for, for, for contrast between modern Aww. polar um, scientific expeditions and yeah. the kind of traditional um, arctic peoples um, a piece of carved scrimshaw with um, decorated whalebone mm -hmm. and two inuit sculptures and so we felt that kind of covered all bases of the collection and we had old things antarctic arctic the other thing we did was um, include our outdoor sculptures which, because they're outdoors, people oh. touch anyway. 
And in the museum I worked at, there were a lot yeah. of outdoor sculptures that were really interesting and that where you could get a lot out of touching them. So we took people outside on a little tour of those as well. And then finally, we used our polar expedition gear from the handling collection and let people dress up in that um, at the end of it if they wanted to. So oh, it was quite, it was, <laughs> we were trying to cover a lot of ground <laughs> in half a day, basically. Oh, that's really Two cool. weeks before the event, we did some training. And the outreach officer who worked at the museum had already done some training herself in supporting visually impaired visitors. So we did some practice in guiding people. Did We then did a trial touch tour ourselves where we took turns to wear blindfolds and be the visitors. And our colleagues presented objects to us. And then we swapped over and had to go at presenting to them. That was one of the most useful things we did. That's so interesting because I think that's something that I would really struggle with. I would want to know, how am I describing things? How am I leading people? How am I guiding people? Because you neither want to be hands-off nor patronising. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's probably quite a fine line. The thing we got out of that was how much of an issue noise was. So um, when you had two tables of people nearby, each of them presenting objects and discussing them, and then you're in an echoey building with high ceilings and so on, it was... intolerable actually when you have a blindfold on it was absolutely intolerable so on the back of that we actually moved our two presentation tables to completely opposite sides of the museum um so that people could um have a much more kind of focused and quiet experience and that's something we we would not have got without doing a trial run like that so that was really useful yeah there's a whole sort of skill in itself of describing objects to people who can't see them and thinking about what are the salient features not overwhelming people with information but also giving them information that allows them to make sense of an object when they first touch it it was really useful for us as well to run through the outdoor tour Mm -hmm. because we spotted several trip hazards and tricky routes that we hadn't noted before as i said we had mostly adults but we did have an eight-year-old boy as well And in practice, our um, training, in fact, at at guiding people wasn't needed because most people came with a companion or a friend anyway. And so they didn't just turn up and we had to sort of go there. It was very useful to have had that as a consideration. It wasn't something we had to do necessarily. It also meant that actually when we were presenting, we were presenting to two people at once. There would be the person who'd come on the tour with a visual impairment and then often they had a companion with them who was sighted. And so you're sort of switching your presentation between the two as well. So it became a bit more complex, but actually also more interesting. One other interesting thing was that there was a group that had booked from a Mm. residential school and we knew that there would be three wheelchair users in the morning session but what we didn't realize was that these three were teenagers with multiple and quite profound disabilities the um carers who had come with them said that they'd been delighted Mm. to see our event because there were so few events around that could accommodate the residents of this school so that, that was quite interesting it was Oh, wow. Really daunting. Um, These teenagers were nonverbal. Most of them had incredibly limited mobility, very limited sight and so on. So it was, we found we really had to kind of revise (laughs) what we'd planned to say and how we had to present these objects. And we found ourselves kind of bringing objects to them rather than just kind of saying, right, here's an object, you know, feel it. Um, And a lot of it was 
-hmm. became then about the very sort of simple, pure interaction that you get just from touching something, not from knowing about it, not from being told about its history, not from understanding it or anything like that, but just from Mm -hmm. feeling something different or new. Feel Mm. how smooth and cool this piece of soapstone is. Can you feel how different this is? Um, And a lot of it just became about Mm -hmm. the the pleasure of touching objects, of touching things and their pure tactile qualities and not about the kind of what the objects are. And that's something you would absolutely not get with any kind of other interaction with museum objects. So that that was one of the things that made me think, okay, sometimes people just have to touch things. (laughs) Yeah, that's so cool. That's profoundly meaningful in a way, you know, like that's the most natural way of connecting with something to touch Mm. it and explore Mm -hmm. what it is. That's so cool. Some people were a bit anxious about whether objects would get broken or whether it was going to be risky. And they shouldn't because I saw much better handling from these blind adults than I have done from some of my colleagues in museums (laughs) over the years. People who are blind are often very, very skilled at handling objects carefully and intelligently and were well aware of the value of what they were holding. And at no time did I feel that the objects were in any danger whatsoever. I wonder how much of that is the special thing of being invited into a place and doing something that's very special and for them. One thing I will say is that if you're going to do touch tours for visually impaired people, the number of people attending them will be minute and the amount of extra touching that your objects get will also be minute. I think it's probably important to get that in perspective but if you're talking about 10 people a year touching an object for five minutes and you think about the amount of unfettered and possibly unnecessary access that museum staff have and the potential for damage that they can do just by overhandling objects i think a very small amount of additional controlled handling like this i'm is not something that keeps me awake at night at all I hadn't considered that really, um, and I I think I was a bit of a a bit of a not a skeptic. Sounds like I didn't think it should be a thing. Obviously, I think it should be a thing, but it made me less kind of aware of the huge benefits versus the really minimal problems with it. That's really hit me from what you've both been saying. That it's you know how how many times is how how much really is it going to be damaged how much is it really going to be affected and if something was dropped then that's not really any different from someone like banging into a display case too hard and something falling off a plinth i'm willing to bet that the vast majority of breakages caused by people are caused by museum staff and not during handling sessions in a in a much more small scale kind of way, and I, I know that you were talking about ten people or something. You know that's, that already sounds pretty small scale, but we did a much less ambitious thing where actually a group of uh, visually impaired visitors, well, would be visitors, actually came to us and basically got in touch with the museum and asked, "Is it possible that you could do something for us? Because we would like to visit, but we don't." get a lot out of what's on display we would really like to come and 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 have a maybe a morning with you like a quiet morning would would that be something you could facilitate so me and the then education officer we sat down and thought okay well how can we best facilitate that because that sounds really interesting and fun and what we ended up doing was there were four or five adults of very various levels of uh, sight impairment that were perfectly happy 
on their own because they went as a group so they mm-hmm. they felt very safe and comfortable uh, they were already a group of friends it was really nice they didn't have any sighted people with them they but they they turned up basically as a group and it was a quiet morning and we took them around the galleries and they really enjoyed going around with us so we could they could get a feeling for the atmosphere of the room because we're partially a historic building. So some rooms have a very distinct echo to them mm-hmm. and creaky floors. You can tell that you're in a very different environment. So we could tell them a bit about the history of the room, describe <laughs> what it looks like. like they, they, mm. could, they, could, they could smell the room because some of them, you know, smell a bit more musty than others. You know, like it's a, the kitchen smells very different from mm-hmm. the library, etc. So we, we took, them, took them around and in, in each one we tried to do something that was a bit handling based. And most of that came from the education collection. But the education collection very much contains real things. Uh, it does kind of annoy me when education collections or handling collections, as they're also known, uh, get a bad rap as secondhand goods or mm-hmm. shit yeah. museums don't actually want. Because yeah. I don't think it's true. They are often real things. They are certainly replicates as well, but they are often real old things and we have some very, very real things. So we actually let them handle some of the Egyptian things that are normally reserved for school children to marvel at and that sort of thing, uh, like basically beaded necklaces of little amulets, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. And we actually had a really good time standing around in these galleries and then talking about, oh, here's where we have Egyptian things on display and we brought we brought you some things that you can handle and then we had a box with us that we could then unpack and explore in that gallery, in that mm-hmm. gallery space, where we then did a lot of, <laughs> mostly me because I love talking about Egyptian things talking about and around the objects because they were perfectly happy feeling them and being tactile with them mm-hmm. kind of on their own there was no need to necessarily explain anything beyond I'm about to hand you a necklace and it was just really nice and then you know old kitchen things in the Victorian kitchen and we just went around and had a very nice time and it was a very sedate sweet nice morning of just spending some time with some people and just letting them handle things that people don't normally get to touch and it was just a really nice thing and obviously they were adults who could tell us what they wanted out of the visit mm. uh, so there was a lot of negotiation and like just communication of what they mm-hmm. wanted what we could reasonably do and really it was more about us taking time away from the other mm. things that we do as part of our jobs uh, and do a bit of that and actually it was the loveliest experience and I would hope that we can do that loads again because it was really really nice mm-hmm. so yeah I mean that, that was a very different thing because it wasn't something we put on it was something that we offered because people asked uh, and would love to do again but yeah that was just one of those things that I don't know, just made me feel all nice inside. <laughs> just warm, fuzzy feelings. It was nice. Thank you for sharing the logistics of that, Christina, because I think hopefully that's really useful to someone out there who may want to try it. And if someone wants wants a more light touch approach, then maybe something uh, along the lines of what we did would uh, be better suited to them as a try, trying it out, uh, what it's like interacting with visually impaired visitors. But uh, hopefully that gives someone out there less of an ulcer and more of a oh this might be a nice thing to do actually oh that reminds me so uh christina you obviously said that paintings were a no-go because paintings yeah but uh well apart from ones with a lot of impact yeah um, yeah but even then it's probably not enough to appreciate what it depicts but yeah so uh but something nice that i dug out of a cupboard one day was that we have small raised versions of some of our paintings they oh. have been made in resin and they're like carved or something like 
carved and then cast into mm. resin so that there's a tactile version of the painting. Oh, wow. Which is really cool. Unfortunately, they are not mounted for display for some <laughs> reason that is beyond me. Probably called cost of a plinth. Um, but there you go. Uh, but they were really nice things. And it reminded me that... Aside from that being a solution of how you can share paintings with people with sight who are sight impaired, uh, I always love this thing when I ever go to the like the Museums Association conference where they have the exhibition of different companies delivering mm-hmm. different things. Mm-hmm. My favorite one to go to is always the one or two that offer the, the tactile maps and stuff yes. like that. I love that stuff and I don't even need that I don't require that but I love it so much I love these different things that you can do about firstly making art more available in a in a touchable way or just showing your museum or your local area in a in like a raised fashion I I just love all of that stuff it's my favorite bit to go to in those sorts of settings where I'm like this is so cool I could never afford this but this is amazing (laughs) I really approve it just reminded me of that uh, that that is an option for so two things um one is that i'd forgotten about this but there's a charity called living paintings that makes tactile books for blind children and adults and they make these raised pictures thermoformed pictures um it's like out of a sheet of plastic that's been raised to create a sort of relief picture yeah and the other thing what you were saying about maps and really liking those made me remember what somebody once said to me was that if you make this stuff accessible to blind people you're not making it less accessible to sighted people yeah yes stuff that's accessible to everybody is accessible to everybody it's not some sort of zero-sum game where you have to take away from one part of the population to give to another part of the population (laughs) why not make all your maps in your museum tactile sighted people are going to understand them anyway but it will also make them more accessible to people who can't see and I I was just so struck by that because I've never really thought of it in those terms I've thought of it as special provision for certain people but that isn't used by the mainstream but why not all of your mainstream interpretation more accessible to everybody that would just make sense wouldn't it absolutely so the biggie here really and I have a lot of sympathy with your (laughs) scepticism Chloe is damage and the damage that is caused by touch and it is undeniable that touch does cause damage and one of the things I like best in National Trust houses and places like that is where they have one of those displays where they've got examples of the kind of materials on display like silk damask and gilding and polished wood and so on and they cover one half with perspex and leave the other half so and encourage people to touch it (laughs) and you, you see this um, silk reduced to rags while the half that's been been protected from touching is still looking absolutely pristine. And I I love those displays because I think they really bring it home to people so clearly how much damage is caused by touch, not just one touch, because everybody's like, well, it's just one touch. It's not going to do anything. So, yeah, touching does cause damage. I suppose is one thing we do have to (laughs) accept. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. But I just think, right, so I guess my thing is that the damage that it will cause the objects that we allow people to touch, which isn't ever going to be every object, because Mm. there's a certain amount of risk assessment involved here. I guess the amount people get out of it is far greater Mm -hmm. to me than the damage. I know you can't really quantify those things, because it's like comparing apples and pears. That is the expression, isn't it? Or is it apples and oranges? Uh, I I have to say I don't really understand that fruit, phrase. Fruit and fruit, uh, <laughs> diff- very different fruits. Let's do kiwis <laughs> and satsumas, and 
obviously they aren't the same thing but but at the same time i feel like the the offset it's so much more important that a person comes away from from this having touched this object mm-hmm. remembering the experience feeling enriched even if it's just that was a really really cool cool rock i just touched yeah. that's like maybe geology isn't very boring you know like yeah it, even that tiny thought is that offsets the damage that yeah. is caused to that object in my head that's why i'm pro touch mm-hmm. because i'm a mental person and <laughs> i just think it's more important that we make an impact on people than that we keep these things forever in an airtight facility because ultimately if we were all about keeping it forever mm-hmm. and that was the only value mm-hmm. of it then we would keep these things in the dock without any oxygen like there, mm-hmm. there would be no point to a museum like the, yeah they're here yeah. to see it sometimes touch it and interact with it experience mm-hmm. something take something away from the experience I'm radical, man. I'm radical. <laughs> Staring at Chloe's slightly no, terrified face. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not terrified so much as, as thinking about the use of collections in a national way. Okay. And thinking about the meaning behind having examples of different things. Because, of course, we're not at any point offering for people to touch, like, the only or the last three, one of the last three of this type of object. When It's not the Magna Carta. It's not, like, sure. the oldest one of these. So I'm just, and I haven't really formed uh, an opinion. I'm just. But I think that's just about. They will always. All that is is that yes, there are different levels of objects. Mm-hmm. Like we wouldn't be particularly happy with anyone touching human remains. No. We wouldn't be particularly happy with someone touching the Magna Carta. No. We wouldn't be particularly happy with someone touching a very religious book. You know, like there are obviously things that are more or less off limits. Except people do touch them, and those people are called curators and conservators. And you did touch on this earlier, Jenny, when you said that, you know, we're allowed to touch this stuff because we're trained and we're special and we're, you know, and and I think some of it is to do with authority, isn't it? And demarcating what you're allowed to do from what other people aren't allowed to do. And this is, of course, the thing about if we're going to, you know, tear down the walls and Mm. democratize our museums and stuff, that this is, these are things that we're going to have to start letting go of. Not in a complete sense, but we're certainly going to have to surrender some of that. And obviously that's, authority was one of the things that we discussed in our Working With Communities episode, Mm -hmm. where we were talking about how source communities, you know, very much get to interact with the objects on their terms, etc. And that touch is very powerful to them, of course. (laughs) So obviously there's, I've got written down guardians or gatekeepers for curators and conservators because yeah. it's a case of are we looking after the object or are we looking after our privilege to touch them why are we allowed to say mm-hmm. no one else gets to touch this we've got special hands to play it's mine with my nitrile gloves yeah. yeah we've got special gloves as a devil's advocate go on i mean i suppose because i'm thinking of examples where i've worked with different people and these are uh, the example that i'm thinking of particularly is and uh, when I've worked with other collections care staff and they've been, I, su- I guess, like early career or volunteers or that sort of thing. I've sort of um, found myself saying things like, I'll handle that because it's a bit risky, not because I don't want you to damage it. That is a factor in everything we do because we naturally risk assess all the time. Mm-hmm. But mm. because if it gets damaged, then it's my fault and it's my responsibility, which is better to me. Like I would rather I broke something than somebody else breaks something because I can say like either I know that I took 
all of the precautions that I could and it broke anyway because it's super delicate or I slipped up and I made a mistake and I broke it because that's every so often the kind of thing that just happens in life because Mm. life but I suppose the devil's advocate card I'll play in this situation is that we touch things and when we touch things it's because we are not allowed to damage Mm. things but we it is our responsibility to interesting yes take care of them and it and when we give that responsibility to someone else who hasn't had the training we have then it's basically putting a weight on their shoulders to operate in a way that they have not been trained to to, to do and I, i know that i don't think this is a very coherent argument because i frankly at this point of the the episode i don't really know what i think anymore <laughs> which i suppose is a good thing <laughs> yeah okay well i i can see that as a responsibility thing i can totally see it i i think that's a brilliant point i hadn't actually thought about it from that point of view but of course you can answer for your own handling yeah. But you can't answer for anybody exactly. else's unless you know them well and so on. So, no, I think that's a totally valid point. The other thing I was going to say is that, of course, it's not always about the risk to the object. It can be about the risk to the person. And we talked about this mm. in the episode about communities and the fact that a lot of ethnographic objects may yes. well have pesticides on them um, or may well be inherently dangerous objects in themselves if they're poisonous or mm-hmm. yeah. you know, things like that and so handling isn't you know sometimes we might not want exactly to allow public handling because it's not safe for the public not just because it's not safe for the object so one thing we haven't talked about yet is the place of replicas in handling oh yeah Ooh. Mm. in reference partly to our replicas and so yeah episode. <laughs> i would argue that replicas are only so good but I say that because I'm thinking of things like, I mean, I guess it depends on what a replica is made out of as well. Yeah. If it's a replica of a bronze statue that is also bronze, then that is a very You've true got the weight and replica. temperature yes. and side of things. What I'm yeah. thinking is that, I mean, it's really, really in right now to do mm-hmm. 3D, 3D printed replicas yes. of things, which is fine. But you're handling a piece of light plastic. And unless it's also been acetone based, it has ridges in it. Like it's not as smooth <laughs> as the original material. Doesn't yes. have the same weight, doesn't have the same yes. feeling. So yeah, you can get a sense for the scale of it or the shape of it. But it isn't an adequate replica in my mind like it like that's no but it is a way to massively increase the ability of museums to provide this sort of handling yeah it's true and i especially enjoy the one that was recently i think it was the petri museum that Mm -hmm. made the egyptian replica musical instruments so that people Ah, could play them very nice which is quite nice yeah so i mean that's cool but um I don't know how I feel about 3D printing. Also on the basis that we don't really know what the bloody plastic is going to yeah. decay like, which, which seems to be very rapidly. Yeah. Because it's rapid prototyping, people. It's not meant for keeps. But anyway, okay, small rant over. Um, I don't know how I feel about replicas. It depends on the replica, I guess. And what the purpose yeah. is of the replica. I was um, going to talk briefly about how we use touch as professionals, because mm-hmm. obviously conservatives do a lot of touching. We're a very tactile profession. Yes. And I just thought it was interesting as a way of, I guess, conveying expertise, because this seems to be something that curators have in their mind as well, that handling things is part of being an expert. 
Oh. If you've been a collector of clocks in your own spare time, for example, uh, okay. then you know a certain amount about the weight of a clock mm-hmm. or the way it moves when you move it. And then if you transfer that to a museum skill, then you you are an expert at handling that mm-hmm. type of object because yeah. you've got that experience. But it's a tactile experience. It isn't about you knowing how a clock fits together. It's yeah. about the tactile mm-hmm. interaction. And I was also thinking, I mean, obviously, conservators do a lot of object handling. So we gradually do know a lot about that stuff. Mm -hmm. If someone handles firearms for a long time, then Mm -hmm. they will have that knowledge in their hands, which is a really (laughs) weird thing to say. But that's a thing. And I was also thinking about things like identification, how how heavy an object is, can tell you about what it contains, what that metal alloy might be. Yeah, like is there still fluid in it? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Just feeling the weight or the shape Mm -hmm. or the texture of a surface, they can tell you a lot about the material Mm -hmm. that you might not be able to identify visually initially. It's it's very immediate way to learn about things, isn't it? In a in a way that looking at them is not. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really cool aspect of our job. But there it is again. That it's an aspect of our jobs. Mm. One of the things. um, So. uh, a paper by Liz Pye in the IIC Conservation and Access book that I mentioned earlier. And she talks about that and about the, when she's talking about the benefit of Mm -hmm. touching objects and the kind of people who would benefit from that. She actually talks about the same kinds of issues that you've just mentioned, Jenny. And she says, um, she talks about the powerful emotional thrill Mm. that you can get from touching objects, but that that's more so for people who had experience of those objects. I did want to say that in terms of how powerful touch can be, I, I do see this with volunteers who are sometimes moved to tears that they get Aww. to touch objects and like because we're doing some repackaging pro- mm. project and stuff. And what while some volunteers will be very like initially like, oh, this is old. Ugh, I kind of don't care now that I've repacked sixty yeah. pieces of yeah. pottery. Like this is no <laughs> longer fun. But uh, <laughs> but then you've got other people who are intensely emotional about the fact that they're repackaging our mm. costume collection because they're so moved by every single thing that they see and they cannot believe that they're allowed to touch them. And if you see the power of that on a daily basis, then yeah. I don't know that it kind of gets to you. You, you kind of see that. Holy sh! First of all, I should be even more grateful than I already am <laughs> of my job because I get to do this all the time, and I do think it's amazing. But like, wow, just but also, I'm so glad that we can facilitate that this person gets to touch this. Mm-hmm. We had a technician in who is retired and we asked him some questions about a case that we were trying to get into. And his first instinct was to tap the glass with his fingernail to see what the response was. Because the pitch of the glass tells him if it's uh, intact or if it's likely to break. He knows the sound and the response Mm -hmm. of how that feels against his fingernail. Mm -hmm. That's experience talking yeah like that's someone yeah. who has a who's well tuned to that material and how it works much like conservators often are very well tuned to their tools mm-hmm. and also mm-hmm. to the materials that they work with so we think of how i felt transformed as a student when we were working on our copper alloy things because i'd never worked on copper alloys before mm-hmm. these were archaeological ones and as we started cleaning them and i was you know initially terrified <laughs> of holding a scalpel to a, yeah. an object yeah. of that sort and how mesmerized I was, how quickly my hands learned how the feelings 
transmitted through the scalpel handle tells me which corrosion product or which layer I'm on yeah. and when to stop, yeah. when it's too far, when you're nearly there. How much knowledge can be transferred mm-hmm. through the simple feeling, so through your scalpel handle into your yeah. hand. Yeah. How insanely cool is that? It's Touch cool. is amazing. Hello, my name is Liz Pye. And I'm now retired, but I worked for a long time at um, UCL teaching conservation and thinking about conservation and watching conservators and looking at museums and thinking about how we interact with visitors to, to museums. What we do affects the visitor. I wrote a paper for an IIC Congress which was all about access through touch. And when I delivered it, I may have imagined this, but I thought there was a sort of sharp intake of breath. (laughs) But then afterwards, a number of people came up to me and said, I'm so glad you talked about that. And I think it's partly because for many conservatives, it's felt a bit like blasphemy to say, here you are, just touch it. But... It just seems wrong that we deny that kind of access. And I particularly remember one man, he had sight problems, I don't know how good or poor his sight was, saying, I couldn't even handle a Paleolithic stone axe, and I didn't think I could do very much damage to that. <laughs> it could probably do more damage to, Somebody <laughs> to you else. than yes. Yes. <laughs> So do you think we gatekeep these things too I think. I think... Much? I think we should, but we should do it with knowledge, with understanding that we have a huge amount of pleasure out of exploring objects and handling them and, you know, looking at them very intimately, which other people don't get. And we, I suppose my basic argument is that we allow things that we know are vulnerable to being exposed to light, we allow them to be viewed, Mm. and we should in the same way, be able to select objects for handling. After all, they don't have to be handled over a very long period or by very many people. I mean, we can rotate them in just the same way as you might rotate an object on display. And now there is thinking about sometimes having brighter days in museums, so people, elderly people whose vision isn't that good anymore or people with other sight problems can really see objects we could have the same sort of concept you know this is a handling day and there are a few things <laughs> we've kind of released from their cases and you you can interact with them wow that, that, <laughs> that seems somehow as if it would be unacceptable to people in a way that the brighter days wouldn't be and i don't know what it is about touch that makes people so uh, hmm. anxious given that all of these things cause damage. So what, what do you think it is about touch that's so I think there's, there's something about the history of museums that the, the sort of earliest private collections that were open to your privileged friends, in a sense. I'm, I mean, I'm talking about really early collections. Mm. You could pick up objects, you could explore them. Yes. And then the idea of opening museum collections more formally like the British Museum people began to get worried about what visitors would do because 
quite rightly, the, the early days of the British Museum, anyone could visit if they could pay for the ticket. Mm-hmm. And so display cases and barriers and so on came along. So somehow touch has been thought of as quite a threat. And yet museum staff, and particularly conservators, are allowed to touch objects all the time. Yes, and some damage is caused by staff handling objects. (laughs) Yes. Because there is something very special about being allowed to touch objects. And so it, it is a shame... Um, that it's restricted just to conservators most of the time. What is it, do you think? Why is touch so important? Part of the way in which we developed skills, you know, in, in prehistory, you know, it, it, it and, and being able to make tools and so on was all because of the nature of our hands that we can manip- manipulate in... Um, ways that perhaps other creatures couldn't and it's an important aspect of our daily interaction with objects around about ourselves I mean if you go into a shop I suppose in these days of getting everything on the internet it's not quite the same but (laughs) if you go into a shop to buy I don't know a length of textile or um, fruit I I know you know people and unhappy if you handle the fruit a bit too much but <laughs> but nevertheless I mean you pick the fruit out of the basket and put them into a bag it's 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 rather like sort of preventing a normal interaction with the world around us to kind of sit on our hands and and just look and of course you can learn a lot from looking at things and you don't necessarily need to handle them in every way, but especially for things like tools, feeling the weight of the tool in your hand, if it's a hand tool, feeling what it'd be like to hold the handle of a tool, how it might work. Because I also feel quite strongly about working objects that we ought really to be prepared to let mechanised or motorised objects work more often for the same reason, because you've you've kind of removed a whole dimension if you can't see that happening and hear it and smell it and all the rest of it. And the same with handling objects. I suppose many conservators are interested in objects, so they are used to handling and observing and perhaps doing that more in daily life, you know, exploring things more mm. than perhaps some others. But... I think for a lot of people, they would be fascinated to handle some objects. Yeah. And there's, there's also the dimension, it's not just how, how an object feels, is it cold or warm or whatever, but it's also the association of this is, this is old, this was used by somebody in the 19th century, the 18th century. Mm. Um, this has its own history. So being physically connected. Yes. To- that history through the object I mean especially if it were associated with a famous person where you probably would want to limit access to general touching but you know the idea that you might be touching something that was touched by somebody very well known for whatever reason and I for instance have uh, as an undergraduate when I was doing my archaeology degree 
I did a dissertation on flint mines. And I've always been fascinated by flints. And I have a collection of bits of flint that I've picked up in, you know, out of gravel pits and things. And sometimes I handle them and think, they are beautifully made, some of them, beautifully flaked. And the person who did this was a very long time ago and couldn't possibly have imagined the kind of life we're all having now. And, and do you think that's enhanced by actually being able to hold these flints in your hand, not just look at them from a distance, that sense of connection? <laughs> <laughs> For me, it does. And also the fact that if you're holding something like that, which has some of them have very, very fine flaking on them, you can... Um, sort of move them around in your hand so they catch the light in different ways and mm. you can see more clearly the direction of the flaking and so on. And if you're looking at something in a display case, you're very dependent on somebody else's choice of lighting and, and oh, viewpoint. Yeah. You can't create that for yourself. It's being presented to you in yeah, a particular exactly. way and you've got exactly. no option but to... Yeah. And sometimes the lighting is very poor too and yes. the bit you want to see, you can't really see very well. So we've, we've talked a bit about the benefits of touch, but the elephant in the room again <laughs> is damage. And this was something that you summed up as, as conservation's catch-22. Yeah, well, the idea of the catch-22 was that... Um, We'd like to provide more access, but the more access we provide through touch, the more damage there's likely to be. So how can we react to it? And, and, this and, was and a, the less value that yeah, the and objects then, yeah, have. Of course, then, the, the value decreases. Therefore, yes. the, um, you know, having access to it, it has less value as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's not such a good experience. And, and I think the... And there was a lot of discussion amongst conservators. And of course, one of the problems with running a project like that is that many of the people who got involved were already interested and already perhaps keen to challenge the current situation of, on the whole, not allowing touch. And we, we really got the, the impression that a lot, a lot more conservators would be happy to allow objects to be touched and handled provided they were um, carefully selected in advance you know and and the extent of touching was was limited um, but one of the big problems is you can't simply kind of lay out a whole range of objects and shut the door uh, leaving people to handle it. It, it, it you you do need some form of supervision and staffing is a problem Staffing is a problem for selecting the material and and then for facilitating handling sessions. And everybody agreed about that. But many of the participants were very much in favour of trying to um, provide more access in that way. But, but, I mean, I suppose my point earlier was that some of the Conservatives who perhaps really would have disapproved very vociferously... Um, may not have been at these workshops and yeah. you know may not have taken part um, but we were kind of pleasantly surprised that so many people were broadly in favour of the idea mm. 
And it, it was also part of the sort of general move now to enrich experience for visitors like the National Trust experimenting in some places with um, setting up spaces within historic buildings where people can actually sit on the furniture and yeah. and read the paper and they can hear music of the time in the mm -hmm. background and that kind of thing. Just to give a rather more three-dimensional experience, I suppose. I wonder if sometimes we forget what the point of museums is. <laughs> I mean, whether we're so focused on the preservation side that we forget about the visitors. <laughs> I think it's easy to. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not perhaps, we're not thinking enough about the visitor's experience. Mm. And, and visitors on the whole are very polite and don't say enough about what they would really like to do, perhaps. I suppose one of the practical difficulties would be that you might accept that it's okay to allow a small amount of touch for your objects and that it's worth incurring that small amount of damage for the benefit that it would bring to those people. But of course, a lot of museums have thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of visitors every year. And how, how do you prioritise if you were to let all of them handle objects, then there mm. would be nothing left very rapidly. So do we limit this to certain classes of people do we do a sort of cost benefit analysis <laughs> saying well i think you would benefit from touching this but i, I don't think you need to or... and you would do it all right and yes somebody else wouldn't <laughs> of course that's rather difficult the next stage if there is to be a next stage would be to try and experiment a bit and see how handling sessions of that kind could be set up mm. um, and also to see how many people would actually be interested because I'm convinced that people would be interested and should be allowed to but possibly this isn't the case for some people. Mm. Certainly I know that the, the handling desks at the British Museum which I think are a really good idea, there are uh, uh, anecdotes, I can't remember who, who I heard this from, that some people when offered the object to handle, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure, isn't it rather valuable or old or something? Um, so in a sense, we've trained the public not to expect it, mm. expect um, that kind of access. I think also your point about it being very resource intensive is true, mm. because not only does it take a lot of staff a lot of staff and also a lot of staff time but if it's to be meaningful or valuable for the visitors then they must also be allowed enough time mm. to handle mm. I think I know That's from doing handling point. sessions that people don't really start to be able to understand the objects or to mm. to benefit from this until you know maybe they've had a good five minutes to yes. to look at it and yes. turn it over and so on so if, if it turns into this sort of production line where you let everybody have have a bit of a stroke <laughs> <laughs> and then you know hurry yes, them and move for the next on. person then, then <clears throat> that's not really benefiting yeah. anybody i don't that's, think that's that's quite true no it isn't it i mean it, i think it has to be you know allowing enough time for real exploration mm. Because after all, that's what we get as conservators. We may be living with an object for a week or two or even longer. And we 
get to see inside and around the back and underneath and all the rest of it. Um, we delve into the surface and uh, we get to know all sorts of things about an object mm. over a long period of, relatively long period of time. And and that for me is immensely enjoyable. But I've, I suppose for some people it may not be very interesting. Mm. Something that a lot of museums are experimenting with now is making replicas for handling and 3D printing has made this possible um, certainly a lot more cheaply than used to be mm. the case and I think it's sometimes oversold a bit <laughs> as producing objects that are indistinguishable from the originals and I think certainly they're often visually indistinguishable but the tactile mm. qualities are often different um, and I wonder how you feel about the use of replicas to spare the originals <laughs> from damage from handling I, I think replicas do have a role and um, particularly things that had moving parts where you perhaps can you can recreate the the function as well as yeah. as the shape and uh, and so on but certainly Unless it's a very skilled replica, it may not feel the same. But I, th I think they have an important role in, in that respect. And also in where, where you've got an object that is incomplete and you can replicate what it perhaps might have looked like when complete. The, I think the proviso has to be that you look at the, look at the replica, handle the replica with the real object nearby. It's not a substitute, it's an, it's an additional experience. Yeah. I'd, I'd never, until you said that, I'd never really thought about gap fills as being somehow analogous with well, replicas, but actually... Yeah, I mean, they, they, they are, you know, depending on how much gap fill, yeah. they are really, yeah. yeah. I also think that, that replicas of mechanised and things like replica machinery and so on mm -hmm. is, is immensely valuable. And, I mean, there are, of course, very, very skilled replicas, particularly if they've been made using the same materials as the original, so um, no metal object replicated in metal. But I, I think sometimes people feel a bit let down, certainly if they start off feeling, well, this is an, an old object, and then suddenly discover it's not. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but perhaps if you're told right at the start, you know, this is a replica of whatever it is, and you can handle it and you can try out winding it up or whatever it is, I think that can be equally satisfactory. Things like musical instruments are a problem. Handling and playing musical instruments. And of course, if you have a, a replica, and it is a musical instrument in its own right, but yeah. it may not produce the same sound at all as the original. And in fact, I mean, I'm thinking about the sort of famous 17th century violins where nobody's mm. been able to mm. replicate quite the original despite any amount of research into that. And so nothing will do except the original. Yes. I mean, there are still yes. people playing Stradivarius oh, yes. or Guernari oh, yes. violins or yes. whatever because <laughs> yes. the replica But, but what, what we forget is that they've been quite considerably altered to make them playable by relatively modern standards. Yes. I always feel a bit sad seeing 
Stradivarius in a museum case and it's just not going to be played. Yes. I completely understand why, (laughs) but, you know, what was it for in the first place? So do you think that kind of lot is acceptable for the sake of a the kind of better better to live a, a day as a lion or whatever saying is than a lifetime as <laughs> a sheep you know <laughs> I mean do you think that's true of museum objects as well and that we should let them live shorter but more glorious lives or more that's nice more thought. useful um, lives well we all know that for many museums the storage problem is horrendous yes very expensive <laughs> very very difficult to monitor um, in fact, much storage is not properly monitored because there just aren't the staff to do it. So setting free some of these <laughs> objects to live a more active life, um, I think you do need to keep a pool of certain types um, because of the research potential. And, of course, there are examples of revisiting museum collections in, in a sense, the archaeology of the collection itself mm. and deriving a huge amount more information out of whatever has been stored because of changes in thinking, um, new techniques of, of um, analysis and so on. So perhaps it would be wrong to get rid of everything, but I think we could... <laughs> we could we could be a bit more relaxed about some. And it would be very good to, to discuss this more, really. The other concept is at UCL, there was a collection of very interesting paintings which were lent to staff to hang in their, mm. in their rooms. And their paintings are slightly different because on the whole, you don't handle them. Um, or you don't, you know, don't, don't handle the painted surface. They had to be, I think, on UCL premises because then presumably they were covered in some way by insurance. But um, there was no checkup on where you were going to hang it, how you were going to hang it, whether you were touching it, whether mm. you hung it right at, you know, in front of a really sunny window or anything. <laughs> but it was lovely to be able to go along, view what was on offer and choose a couple of, I borrowed some really interesting things maybe a little bit more like that a little bit more kind of allowing people to to take things home maybe the museum lending library yes wow (laughs) (laughs) and I think perhaps there would need to be a little bit of discussion about why you were borrowing them and you know why were you interested yeah but it always seems to me very sad that there's lots of stuff that, that's been donated to museums, for instance. Things that people valued in their own private ownership and felt that they should be available more widely, and they sit in store. Mm. And that seems a, a sad thing. I mean, they're there, they're in a catalogue, so if you're particularly interested in whatever it is, you can perhaps discover it and you can arrange to go and see it. But it's not really making things liberally available. I suppose the hope is that they are preserved, these objects that are bequeathed or or donated. But they may not see the light of day very often. So, potentially museum lending libraries and... (laughs) 
working objects for all. <laughs> well, Liz Pye, thank you very much for talking to the C word today. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> and apologies for any sort of background noise. We're, we're sitting in the um, Cambridge University Botanic Gardens on a lovely sunny day, but there's been rather more aeroplanes and uh, lawnmowers and than, than we anticipated. <laughs> As some of our listeners might be aware, there's recently been a big AIC conference over in America. Shout out to our American colleagues and friends. And uh, basically, we asked some of our listeners if they'd be willing to send us a review of their time there. And now we're going to listen to reviews sent in by Anisha and Jane. Hi, my name is Anisha Gupta, and I'm a paper conservator at the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia. And I'm just talking a little bit about uh, the highlights that I had from AIC this year. Uh, the first is kind of a treatment-related um, highlight, which was essentially the gel fest that happened on Thursday afternoon, um, which is about the use of gels in different disciplines. And a huge shout-out to the session organizers. These were all fantastic talks. And it was so great to hear from different disciplines, and I, I love um, when AIC decides to do that. So um, I'll talk about a few talks that really hit home for me, keeping in mind that I'm a paper conservator. But Kathy McGee's talk on high acyl gel and gum on parchment looks really handy, even if you're not working on parchment, but you want to limit moisture and the need for mechanical action. Um, that's definitely something I'm going to be exploring. Michelle Sullivan using gels in light bleaching was a talk showing paper conservators that gels can continue to be pushed in their application. And we should just be continuing to think about how we can be applying gels different ways. And then, though this was not a paper talk, um, I really enjoyed Rosa Cesarich Espunez's talk on micro-fragmented agrogels for mural paintings. That was really awesome because she was working vertically on murals, um, and it was really great to see how she was using kind of like a palette knife to like slather on the gel on a vertical surface, which made me also think about how useful that technique would be in wallpaper. So yeah, so the gel talks were really awesome, but there's also, um, I was really excited to hear an equity inclusion equity and inclusion themes throughout the conference talks. So starting with the opening general session with Conservation is Not Neutral by Fletcher Durant through to the closing session entitled Untold Stories, Indigenous Futures and Collaborative Con Conversations organized by Sanchita Balachandran. Untold Stories was probably my biggest highlight and included speakers from the Akamont Educational Initiative discussing how we can decolonize conservation. Um, and it's great because the slides are on the Untold Stories website and they will soon also be uploading a video. But some of the highlights for me were talking about how art conservation as practiced within the context of most Western collecting institutions has been involved in colonial, imperial, and genocidal practices that removed cultural heritage and its care from their originating communities. And art conservation is often also emphasize the visual aspects of cultural heritage over more important aspects like performance, use and handling, storytelling, and the continuation of living practices, living cultural practices. Uh, and that certainly is true, at least of my training. And to move ahead collaboratively, we have to understand that the right to narrate one's cultural heritage is a human right, and that art conservators are only temporary stewards of cultural heritage. And I, I think the objects conservators get more explicit training around these ideas since they work directly with indigenous objects. Um, and, and I'm a paper conservator. And so I'd like to think, as I leave AIC now, I'd like to think more about how other disciplines can think about decolonizing conservation and our current 
current practices and really um, trying to bring the focus of our work back to the communities from which the objects stem from and are coming from and how we can um, have uh, more of a dialogue. We are temporary, the temporary stewards. And so how do our conservation practices affect what a whole community has been working on and creating these objects. And so um, I thought AIC this year included so many of these ideas, like I said, not just in um, untold stories, but throughout different um, talks. I saw on Twitter uh, the Contemporary Art Network, which uh, debuted this year at AIC, was also having really interesting conversations around the role of the conservator and when it makes sense to intervene and when we should be pulling back. And so I think there's a lot of similar threads running through all of these sessions around equity and inclusion. That was really exciting to see. And I really expect to see more of that at next year's AIC and at um, other conferences. And I'm I'm excited to hear what else um, others found were the highlights of AIC. Hi, my name is Jane Henderson and I teach conservation at Cardiff University. One of the things I'm most proud of is that a job I left about, well, 30 years ago, some people still think I'm doing it and still ask me questions. I'll explain why I use that in my introduction later. So this is my review from the AIC, the American Institute of Conservation Conference, which was held on the Mohegan Sun Conference Centre. And I'd just like to start by thanking the Mohegan people for allowing us onto the land and for welcoming us to their quite stunning space and making it available to us for the whole of the conference. So the conference started in a very satisfactory conservation way. The opening sessions really fed all of our inner conservators' needs. There was challenge from Fletcher Durant, who reminded us that conservation was not neutral and his paper was supported by so much evidence about the problem that in conservation, I think, we are a largely white profession conserving things of a largely white people. And he asked us to to reflect on why that was and to reflect on the hidden histories and the stories that we weren't engaging with. We also had Jackie Elgar giving us lessons learned from the fishbowl and preserving Nirvana. And it was just the most beautiful talk about a public engagement conservation. The conservation was public, the thought that was gone into it was beautiful. It was just one of those soothing talks that you could have listened to for hours. And the other one that I'm going to pick out from the introduction was Matthew Cushman, the poker player turned conservator, who gave us some ideas about how we could perhaps reflect and learn and become better people. And I felt that this was a really positive start to the conference for me, because it really kind of set out the, the breadth of conservation and the depth of ideas, but still giving us plenty to do. So if you've never been to AIC before, there's a few things that you might be interested in that I think perhaps surprised me. First of all, I start with the thing I loved. I loved shed, or they called the Americans called it sked, and I couldn't work out why S C H E D was sked or shed. And it's because it's scheduled, but obviously, being a Brit, I say shed, and um, being A I C, it's clearly sked, and I should have learned that a lot quicker. But sked is an app that allows you to plan what you're going to do, organize your thoughts, get insight into the sessions, but also to share information. I think it was a lovely app and one I would definitely like to see in a conference where there's multiple rooms going on at the same time again. Now, at the American Institute of Conservation, there's quite an American way of doing things. So there's activities the day before, there's activities from half past seven, there's activities in your lunchtime, there's activities filling every pore of every minute of the day. And I have to admit that I found that a little bit wearing. I think that having, you know, lunch breaks and breaks where people have a bit of downtime would be a bit nicer for me. Overall, the whole thing was incredibly well organised. 
So let's move on to the content and the highlights. Well, there's just too much to, to say. And sitting here going through the books, you're trying to pick out highlights has been an absolute nightmare for me. So the things I really liked uh, were the things I think that Eve, that taught me something new. I really liked um, Irene de la Veris, who talked about the conservation of prehistoric Bolivian funeral towers made of chelpo. And what was really interesting about her talk was that these had been previously identified as adobe or adobe-like by basically people who'd swanned in with cultural assumptions, not taken the time to actually study and look at the material that this, these towers had been built for, and had just kind of slapped their assumptions on it and moved on. And the consequence for mistakenly identifying the manufacturing technique has been some appalling attempts at conservation which were failing. Irene, on the other hand, had spent time studying the materials, studying the construction, was doing research both technically and also practically, attempting to rebuild, and then showed some of the rebuilding attempts that they've been making. And this is a project which was being run on a shoestring to save some incredibly important things and needed so much more resources. And resources is really one of my themes for the conference. The next one I'm going to talk about has exactly the same thing I like about it, which is Tanushri Gupta. She was talking about pigeons, friend or foe. I'm not quite sure when they're anybody's friends. But anyway, some of the solutions that she posed were organic and simple from having birds of prey fly around the space to simply knowing that they can't stand on a 45 degree angle and being able to put sort of sloping sections into stonework on buildings where they normally sit. These are the kind of things that I absolutely love, people making things work. And Simon Lambert picked this thing up on his reorg talk. He talked about the importance of getting things better, about the work that needs to be done in museums and museum improvement. He had so much statistics around the world of the crisis in museums and so many practical tips on how we can quickly and simply make improvements in our collection storage in order to deliver access, in order to make our collections accessible and user usable. And it was great the way he located that at the beginning. And it was great the way he talked about the fact that sometimes we need to make simple, low-cost solutions. So I very much enjoyed him. So those were some of the talks that I really liked. There were more, but I'm going to just talk about a couple of posters that I thought were great. Jermaine Joseph talked about the Walcott Place Urban Regeneration Project, posted, <laughs> I wrote, and her poster really talked about the role of museums in regeneration. I loved Abby Kundishara's po poster from Yale about IPM. It was all about visuals. It was about crowning bug kings and queens of people who caught the most. And it was interesting to hear to read Dr. Nan Feng's poster on challenging the kind of um, uninformed implementation of environmental standards at the Jilin University in China. That felt very much like a, an engagement with topics I've been thinking about. And one of the joys of poster sessions is that you get to stand and chat to people. And I chatted to Lindsay Cassell, who was talking about this, the surface-enhanced use of ramen to identify organic colorants. And it was just a lovely student quality good piece of research, lots of angle thought through, just really nice to see. So I have so many more highlights I've written down. The building was massive, the, Mo the Mohegan Sun Reserve, and sometimes you had to run over to the Earth Tower to get to talks. And two that I ran over for that I thought were worth it were JP Brand's imaging tools, always good for a bit of a tech out, and Jordan Ferraro on light management, a simple user engagement light management strategy that was, um, that was fun. 
So what were the themes that came out? Well, people talked a lot about gels and they were good papers. There were talks about lasers and there was a lot of talks about sustainability. Nice to hear the uh, champions for sustainability running sessions all the way through the conference. Um, Sustainability and conservation group um, particularly. So despite sustainability being a massive theme and a lot of people talking about things that they could do, the things I liked less pertained exactly to sustainability. There was a lot of talk about the use of solvents, which frankly I thought was so dangerous to human life. I just couldn't understand why we'd be going there with those solvents. There was people talking about solutions that they found to problems, which were so technically heavy that I felt could only be born from resources. And even some people talking about having low resource situations when they were still throwing masses of kits at problem. I think as a profession, we've got to find a way to showcase the simple, the elegant, the genuinely sustainable. We can't keep sort of fetishizing the high cost, high tech solutions as if they are somehow inherently better. And I did feel that there was a tiny bit of that coming through. What else didn't I like? I, I felt that quite a lot of the talks were very very lovely case studies, case studies where I really enjoyed watching the conservation, but that I felt could have done a little bit more work to set the context. So a little bit more on what other people have done. Quite a few of the case studies were repeating techniques and tools and approaches that I know have been published elsewhere. And I would have liked to have seen a bit of an acknowledgement for that. Just to say, I know other people have talked about this, but this is how I did it. And I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of people saying, and anyway, this is what you might be able to do with my ideas, or this is how it might help you. So a little bit more reflection would have been nice for me. I found the business meeting so well managed, the AIC business meeting so well managed. It was almost unnerving in terms of its precision. I can totally see why in the current climate of the American Institute of Conservation that that was a a decision well made. But whether the American Institute of Conservation have resolved some of the arguments that have been going on and whether they took the opportunity fully, I don't know. It's not my organisation, so very hard for me to comment. I could only contrast in my head what it would have been like if it had been run in Britain with a similar level of debate going on And I imagine the discussion would have been less organised. Let's put it that way. So (laughs) I think that's just about everything I had to say. I have, well, I have so much more to say, to be honest with you. But it it was a great conference. Oh, of course, yes. The reception, the opening reception was absolutely fantastic. We were taken over to the Mashantucket Pico Tribal Nation Museum and Research Centre. Um, We got to look around, but we also had um, welcoming dances. The fancy shawl dance was my absolute favourite. It it was so nice to be welcomed to these tribal areas. It was absolutely lovely. So to end, overall, it was a great experience. If you've ever thought about putting in a paper for AIC, I really think you should. It's a great audience, um, very welcoming. There's also the opportunities to put sessions in before the conference. Um, My involvement in one of those on um, Centering Valley was what drew, drew me out there. And in fact, it was in that session that Becky Fifield reminded us that our biographies should be more about our achievements, less of our job titles, which is why I started my biography slightly differently on this recording. I'm going to end with a talk by Brian Castriola on on the Future Library. It's an art project. It was a difficult talk for me to understand, being perhaps smaller brained, but it really got me thinking. It was the conservation of a contemporary art piece, which was about creating a library for the future from a forest. There was ceremonies, there were events, there were unread books, there were manuscripts being kept, there was trees being grown, there was books that were going to be made in 100 years. There's so much to this. 
And it really, he really challenged us as a profession to think about what it is that we do conserve, what it is that we're engaged in and what's important for us to, to relate to. And the stretch so far beyond preserving simply tangible materials. So important for us to all get going in our thoughts with. So thank you very much, AIC. It was a tremendously well-organized conference. I had a great time and I will definitely be going back. Thanks so much for sending in your thoughts, guys. If anyone else wants to uh, send us a quick review or tweet us some thoughts about the AIC conference, then feel free to. We would love to hear more. Thanks so much. As always, we welcome your comments, questions and corrections. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. Well, that's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. And this time we'd like to wish Nike welcome, our latest patron. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. With the C word, and you'll be listening to Christina Rosaic, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenny Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about analysis. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. Intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Mystic, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production! Can I just eat all the Maltesers off the top of my rocky road because they're going to crunch horrendously, so...